Church, it is a blessing to be here once again this morning. I'm excited, filled with joy. Anytime I can have an opportunity to share God's word, it does something to us. It excites us. It excites my heart. So thank you for the blessing. Um, Garrett, thank you for the opportunity. And we will continue to pray on behalf of First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro and my senior pastor, uh, Zach um, Schlegel. Uh, and all the elders and leaders, we greet you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ and thank you once again for being partners with us in this gospel faith. Amen? Amen. Can I just start with a brief uh, prayer for our time in his word? Would you join me? Gracious Lord, we thank you once again for this day. What a wonderful and orderly service, Father, um, that spoke great passion and help us, Lord, to enter into your courts with praise and thanksgiving. And so, Lord, now we just turn our time over to you, as has been prayed. Be with us now as the word is proclaimed. Uh, Lord, reduce me down so that you might be lifted and exalted and help all the folks know that there is a God who saves and there is a God who loves and that, Father, you are he in Christ Jesus is the Lord who makes it all possible. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. Well, if any of you have had an opportunity to work with disaster relief, um, you know that from firsthand experience, that's, it's a rough task. Um, sometimes those who are able to go out to those locations they see firsthand what we only see through the news and through the web fronts. You see natural disasters and devastations where survivors are displaced from their neighborhoods, their community ties, social networks, uh, relationships are strained and their attachments and identities get disrupted, causing both material and emotional loss. Conflict in the communities often ensues, and a host of other things that are just sometimes very hard, difficult, even horrific to see. In 2005 of August, in our own homeland, Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast and caused the largest displacement of whole communities in U.S. history. And there are so many we could speak of, but I like to keep us at home because I want us to understand that there is gravity and proximity, and God is helping us to understand its importance and, its, and his work there. We're familiar with the story, but imagine if you were one of the victims, that you were in New Orleans, and that it was your home, that a neighborhood that was destroyed. And two years have passed, and you're finally able to return to the neighborhood, only to find that it's still broken down. It's in shambles. The whole neighborhood is still in disrepair. The sights and the smells of the area as you come back in it, they, they bring back memories, painful as they are. The suffering effects. And as you think about that, you're, you're, you're faced with the daunting task of, how do I rebuild? Is it, is it even worth rebuilding? And it's pointless without a lot of support. And right now, no support is ready for your area. On top of this, you have serious injuries that never healed from the tragedy, which prevented you from getting back into the workforce. And so, you're out of jobs and you don't have a place. And, and the city, as New Orleans is, it's preparing for its annual celebrations and even commemorating the progress, the progress of rebuilding after the hurricane. But you can't bring yourself to feel or go through celebrating anything at this time. In fact, things look pretty hopeless. But then, Someone arrives and starts cleaning up the area. They secure the support to rebuild the neighborhood and all the homes 
including yours. They assist you by showing you how to complete all the forms, all the processes that you needed, and they even get you the medical attention to fix the part of you that was broken, the part that prevented you from getting a job. They're able to provide the medical assistance to do that, and now you can go to that job that you have now been hired for, even in a greater capacity than what you had before. Things seem to be moving forward overall, and they're back in some cases even better, like now you have child support or your child care is being provided in the area. And so you are just sailing. And then one day, you walk out to your new mailbox that's in your pretty new lawn in your nice new home. And when you open it up, there's a big envelope. And in that envelope, it says, payment due. You carefully open it, and you see at the bottom of the statement this message. Thankfully, we want to thank you that we could serve you. We only ask, and then your head starts to droop. We only ask that, one, you join us to celebrate all the accomplishments. Two, please tell everyone you know about the help you received. And finally, tell everyone you know it's available to them also. Would you pay the bill? Would you go out expressing your approval and admiration for the persons and the programs that allowed for all this accomplishment? Friends and family, that's what praise literally is. It's celebrating, expressing your approval and admiration of something, person, or program. Today, we often think that praise starts from the outside of the externals. But what we find is praise starts motivationally from the inside. And so one of the things we want to do today, and our passage leads us there as we turn to Psalm 147, we think that even though that was fictional, it's not too far from the truth. And sometimes many of us might have even seen incidences where that was reflective of the truth. But in Psalm 147, we get a glimpse into the history of Israel that leaves us shouting for joy. It helps us to understand in situations, how is it that we can live a life of praise? And one of the ways we do that, the psalm writer will help and show us that. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Psalm 147, and we'll be coming from the whole psalm. I'm going to read it first, and then we're going to go through that. So starting in verse 1, and please forgive me, I, I forgot you guys are not on the ESV. Is that correct? Okay, okay. So this may sound a little different, but uh, I apologize. So please follow with me. Okay, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant in and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rains for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. 
Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Amen. You see, the challenge isn't new when we understand the backgrounds of this song. It was written for the exiles returning from the promised land after having been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Psalms 146, in fact, through 150 are considered these high crescendo of praise songs because they all start with the words, praise the Lord. Some of your Bibles might say, hallelujah to the Lord because hallelujah is the praise is literally hallelujah is praise Lord or praise Jehovah. And so we have this high praise that, that inculcates the ending of the psaltery of all of the ways in which that book tends to be sometimes our most dear book because it, it touches our very hearts through all the ups and the downs, the sorrows and the pains, the madnesses, but it ends on a high note, praising God. And they could have been specifically for the celebration of the dedication of the walls that were restored in the campaigns through Nehemiah and through Ezra. It praises the Lord in verse 2 for building up of Jerusalem and gathering the outcast of Israel. Verse 13 says, the Lord was strengthening the bars of the Jerusalem gates, which would fit the rebuilt walls. Nehemiah echoes these same things in Nehemiah 12, 27. He says, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns thanksgivings with songs to accompany the cymbals and harps and lyres. Similar musical items that were right here in this psalm and the other psalms of between 146 and 150. So it seems likely that this is the psalm and one of the songs that were written for the celebration after the walls of Jerusalem. And it calls for four times for us to praise the Lord, or sing thanks to the Lord. And our passage today is set with the similar backdrop of our opening story as we talked about Katrina, because God is building up those who have returned to a decimated place, and he is encouraging, the psalmist is encouraging us to praise the Lord. In fact, God is worthy of our highest praise. And the psalmist is telling us why we should then live a lifestyle of praise to God. That is our big idea. Why live a lifestyle of praise to God? And he's going to break it down into three points. We should live a lifestyle for those who take notes. We should live a lifestyle of praise to God because God restores us to our purpose. That's point number one, and that will be from verses one through six. And then he says that we should live a lifestyle of praise to God because he delights in loving his people. That will be verses seven through 11. And then we should live a lifestyle of praise to God because of the provision of his word and that'll be verses 12 through 20. So he starts with this 
acclamation. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. We bring into this section that God restores us to our original purpose. Well, what is that purpose? And why is it good and fitting to sing praises to God? Well, we just even spoke in one of our statements, in one of our um, declarations, is that we were made to praise God. We've been made to glorify God. As a child of God, there's a lifestyle that fits beautifully, and it's fitting for any time, and it's a lifestyle to praise God. What is a lifestyle? A lifestyle is nothing than a typical way of life. And the psalmist is giving us an idea that the typical way of life for an individual, for a group who has been saved, who has been redeemed by God, is to praise God. There's many calls to worship, but we see that the fittingness of this is even echoed in Psalm 33. It says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. Why? Because it is fitting for the upright to praise him. Fitting for the righteous. And that word can be translated as becoming or appropriate. So it is becoming or appropriate for us to worship God and to sing praises. And it's also translated as beautiful. So it's beautiful to praise God. For those in the right standing, the God of the Bible, the God Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, it's appropriate to praise him. Those who love him and obey him, it's proper for them to worship him. It's not something that's becoming just because of the righteousness that we have, for we bring no righteousness. It's the righteous thing to do because of the righteousness that's been imputed to us. Paul says in Romans 3.22 that the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You are made righteous, not because of things that we have done, but by the purifying, by the washing of blood, by the upright of Jesus Christ because of his righteousness. God accepts you as his child and receives you as his own through the works of his son on the cross. As a child of God, it's part of your new lifestyle to praise him. It's appropriate for you to praise him in everything. This is the beautiful life that God calls you to live. It's the Christian lifestyle, and it's framed in praise. Yes. Say, well, I'm not sure I know how to live that lifestyle, but you're already living a lifestyle. Question is, which lifestyle are you living? Some like to live an urban lifestyle because they like the city life, and there's characteristics that kind of identify you as an urban city dweller versus a country versus a suburban there are conservatives, there are, are, are progressives, there are all different types of lifestyles, but the one that the Christian holds high is the lifestyle of praise that lifts up the name of Christ. It is everything in us that should reveal that the Lord is in us. And that deserves a lifestyle of praise. And the phrase then goes on and it says, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. And before we get to that building up of Jerusalem, I just want to just put a, a, a peg in that. Thank you all for going and catechizing the church. This, this that they said today through this declaration, I wrote this down. I thought this was beautiful. It says in the Sola de Gloria, that we reaffirm that because salvation is of a God and has been accomplished by God, what? It is for God's glory and that we must glorify him always. Yes. That's the reason why we recite these. Westminster Catechism says, what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So I just wanted to say thank you because it's always a good reminder to know why do we do this? because it helps us to remember. 
And so when, when the psalmist goes in, he then goes in and says that the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He rebuilt Jerusalem, how? Through godly leaders, through the skills of those, through Ezra, through Nehemiah. Those are great and wonderful books of understanding what godly men in positions of what might be considered secular office served the living God and went back and the Lord rebuilt Jerusalem again after the repeated sins that led to its destruction. And the psalmist is very clear about this. God is the one who took them into captivity through the Babylonians, but God is also the one who will bring them out of captivity. He rebuilt Jerusalem because of his grace so that his people would be a center of praise for his name. Jeremiah helped them remember this. He says in Jeremiah 30, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah says that the Lord, I will bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. They didn't get there by accident. It wasn't fortuitous events that happened. It was by the will of God that they came back. He further goes on and says in, in, in chapter 46 of Jeremiah, but fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Isaiah says he shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah. The psalmist is helping us remember the God who brought you out to purify you through discipline. For those who he loves, he disciplines. But he never forgot them. He brought them back. And as he said and as he promised, so shall he do. We can praise God. He says, the Lord built up Jerusalem, and then he goes, he gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of their stars. He determines the numbers of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The restoring grace is seen in the way that the psalmist describes how God used all of these things in order to bring his people back. He gathers the outcast. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars. He is the one who lifts up the humble, the afflicted, and he casts down the wicked to the ground. Friends, we have to be reminded that the spirit of the Lord in this capacity should be encouraging news because he didn't go to all of the greats, but it says he went to the outcasts. Who are the outcasts? He didn't say the nobles, the dignitaries, the soldiers, the elite, the outcasts, the brokenhearted, the wounded. God is seeking those who need something. He knows what they need. He knows they need them. They know he needs him. Not just here. We're reminded again. What does Jesus say? In Luke, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim and release to the captives and recover sight of the blind to set the free, set free those who have been oppressed. The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. It sounds like the same crowd that's in the Psalms. But even further, Paul goes on to echo this. Is this just, maybe it's the Old Testament, but Jesus said it, but maybe it ended there. But Paul says to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brethren. 
There were not many of you who were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. What are the things that are not? They're the things that are not powerful, the things that are not rich, the things that are not strong. They're not beautiful, they're not popular, they don't have the most likes, they're not smart, they're not educated. They don't come from the right side of the tracks, they're not privileged, they don't have everything, but they're weak. They are the foolish things. God chooses the poor. He chooses those to pour out his grace that are outcast, that are brokenhearted, that are wounded, afflicted. The ones that are not. Is this a list of cause of stumbling for you or a source of great hope? Do we find ourselves as being one of the nots or one of the haves? And it's not wrong to have things. In fact, it's not wrong to be strong or beautiful or rich or any of those. But oftentimes our world has a way of discarding everyone else. But the psalmist wants us to say, but that's not God. So even those who are not in those categories they can praise him. It's the list that helps us to know that God is accepting is not on my merits of work, but on his grace and on his loving mercy. He says that if you continue in the prideful things, that the pride are those who get struck down. He says God will cast down to the ground the wicked. David describes, well then, who are the wicked? In Psalm 10, he says, this is an understanding of the wicked. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Genesis talks about that same thing in the book of, of in the chapter 6, right before the flood. It says the wicked men were always giving attention to thoughts of evil continuously. And God had to white man and start over again with Moses, I mean with Noah and his family. See, left to ourselves, we will grow in a way that does not praise God but actually goes against and becomes the wicked of God. And so the psalmist helps us then remember that because of our great God, nothing is difficult for him to do. As much as that may sound like, how can God save me? He gives that little footnote. He numbers, he counts the stars, he gives them name, all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Sometimes we think it's just impossible for God to save me. How can he know all of these people? How could he gather everyone together and make it right? He says, look at the stars of the sky. Can you count them? They're innumerable. But here's who your God is. Not only does he know and has placed everyone, he has named everyone. If he can do that, is saving the heart, the brokenhearted? Is bringing back and creating the walls and lifting and building back? Is that too hard for God? If he knows every number and of your hair, is this too difficult for your God? If God governs the stars and the heavens, he calls them by name. Is God's grace sufficient 
to not only save us, but to lift us up and to be able to proclaim the glories of his grace. We should praise God for his restoring and his redeeming power. But you may ask, well, God, why would he do that? Why would he save brokenhearted folks? Why would he take the outcast? Why would he look for those that no one else is looking for and using them in order to rebuild Jerusalem, as it would be in this case? And the next part of the psalm is a beautiful, beautiful reminder. Because if I can praise him for how he brings me to my purpose, which is to glorify him, but then surely I can praise him because why does he do that with us? The second point, because he delights in loving his people. We are supposed to find our greatest delight in God. And yet the scriptures help us understand God finds great delight in loving you, in loving his people. After the call to praise, we again see the themes of God's grace and greatness. In verse 7, it says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens in the cloud. He prepares rain for the earth, and he makes the grass grow on the hills. He gives the beasts their food and the young ravens their crime. Note the things that most people attribute to nature, or as some would even say, mother nature. No, there's no mother nature. There's Father God, and he sovereignly controls all things. And he helps us to understand that it's God who's involved in making the clouds and sending the rain. It's God who causes the grass to grow and feeding the animals. Even as the psalmist says, the baby ravens, the essence of even them who mothers might leave, God feeds them. He takes care of them. All of the vastness of his, of the things we can see, God is in control of that. I remember me and my wife went on a cruise one time, and one of the areas that I had never been exposed to helped see the majesty of God's great creation. As she went to go do other things, she left me to take on the adventure of scuba diving. And if you've ever been scuba diving, you realize that you are the stranger and all of the fish are in their natural habitat. And for someone who never grew up in that kind of habitat, trust me, it was terrifying. <laughs> My saving grace was I was underwater so nobody could see me. But I was screaming because fish are coming all at you, you know, and they're just kind of rolling up to you. And you're, and, 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 and you're thinking like, well, come on, when I go to the fish tank and I tap on it, they scatter. But now they're just like, oh, they're going to come up to me. And they're, it's just, it's, it's amazing. But you start to see the vastness of the undersea. And immediately pops in your mind, oh, my Lord, this is you, God. I mean, I got scared because I got to a point where you go down deep and there's like a, a, a cliff and you just see darkness out there and you're like, oh, I can't get dizzy underwater because then, you know, it's, it's just, it's amazing. And I'll always remember one of my missionary friends says, that's what saved him. He was also into aquariums and the aquatic life. And he said when he saw all of the, the, the like the clownfish and the different... He's like, there's no explanation but God. He wasn't a believer, but he's like, there. That's, that's, that's what comes to mind. When we go out and see the beautiful countryside and the mountains and everything, people don't travel, as I've heard, you don't travel and pay for thousands of miles of a trip to just say, oh, Grand Canyon, that was cool, and walk on. You, you're astounded with what God, it, it, it overwhelms you. The psalmist says, that's our God. He's worthy of praise.
praise. How do we praise God? By being an observer. By being a proclaiming observer. True, they couldn't hear me under the water saying, this is God, this is God. But when I came out of the water, I'm like, oh, this is God, this is nothing. When we see things that we have, we know the answer. It's not Mother Nature. It's not this. It's not the great. It's God. Give him praise. Let them know who is the one who created this, who does all of these things. It's God. And so we can praise him as the psalmist. We can take pleasure in praising God because God then takes pleasure in seeing us bear recognition to him. God, this is your glory. He delights in that. It says it's one of the most amazing facts, the scripture, that God actually delights in his people who rejoice over him. Isaiah says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Zephaniah blows my mind. He says, the Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing on a day of festival. And he's looking to the day when God does reassemble his people and bring them into the land, the outcast, the brokenhearted. He starts to say that God brings delight when he sees that. And I'm going to tell you, I can't wait to hear what God sounds like singing to me. My wife has a beautiful voice, and she can get a heart of flutter. So I can only imagine God singing to me? A loud singing? Not even an embarrassed, like, oh, yeah, Tyrone is going to. But he sings like what we hear here, the praises of his people. We get that because our God is the one who delights and loves us. And we get this relationship that then starts going. We love God. God delights in us, brings love back. We get excited because the one of our desires is loving us. And therefore, we want to do more to not gain salvation, but exercise the freedoms that come when sin gets put to the side and the beauty of God is so great. And then we exalt and we live more for him and the world starts to diminish and he becomes powerful. And so he loves back on us and you get this relationship just going because praise is what we've been built to do. It is our lifestyle and it brings more than simply words that come from our mouths. It reaches to the very depths of our soul because it connects us to the most desirous one we will ever have, and that's God. Amen. There might be some of you here today that just don't know that I'm speaking a foreign language. Like, Tyrone, I don't even get that. I don't even understand. You don't even see him. How do you know all of this? How can you be sure of all of this? Friends, that's what the gospel helps confirm for us that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever whosoever shall believe shall not perish but have everlasting life that's the gospel Jesus Christ died so that he would show it was so important that God's image bearer creation know that that his son said this is what must be done so that they could be joined in this eternal bliss of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It wasn't just for us. It was for you. But it comes through him. If you don't know Jesus Christ for the repentance of sin, for the forgiveness of sins, the repentance of of turning away from the world and turning to him. Friend, I say, please, come to know who Jesus is. Ask any of those here today. Find out what it means to live a life where I have accepted 
the righteousness of Christ and my sins have been pinned to his cross never to be brought back on me again because his sacrifice and his blood was sufficient. How do we know? Because he rose from the grave and now he sits on the right hand of God intervening for us and interceding for us. That is the gospel. And he says, this is for you. You too can know what it then means to live a life of praise for God because that's a beautiful Savior who came after the knots of the world like me and you. Amen. God's grace is power. It provides the spiritual needs that we need and we desire. And so finally, not only does he restore and redeem us, not only does he give us this, uh, this beautiful life where he has shown his love for us, but the third point, we should live a life of praise because of the provision of his word. God's grace and his power, they provide for all of our physical needs. The, the psalmist says, praise the Lord once again, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children. I'm sorry, your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He's saying, I bless you through the people. Through them, my blessing pours out on you, strengthening the bars of the gate. Sometimes we wonder, how is it just singing in church that brings praise to God? No. It's doing your job. It's living life that says God is in me. And so here he's saying the bars of the gates. What is this? That's your military. That's your, 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 force, your law enforcement areas that bring honor to God because it protects his people. There's so many areas where people believe, well, I don't really do anything. But God uses everybody in order in anybody to glorify him. And the beautiful thing is sometimes we think we're left to the side. We think that because I wash windows, because I clean floors, because I babysit, because I do all sorts of things that I'm not valued. But God is saying, no, he blesses your children. Within, he's giving you assignments and he gives you things that allow you to pour into those lives so as to bring glory and praise to him. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, he sends out his command to the earth, and his word runs swiftly. He gives snow like the wool, he scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down the crystals like ice crumbs. Uh, who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his winds blow and the waters flow. We keep getting reminded of his word. And it's important to remember his word because God is showing that in his word, through his breath, that he has created all things and they serve him. All the things, God's in control of the forces of nature, which he not only created, but he also actively governs on behalf of his people. The psalmist says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe for the Lord spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. One of our favorite verses, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. See, the doctrines of creation help enable us to recognize more clearly that science and technology are instruments to glorify God, not instruments to go against God. If there are those who are in that field, praise be to God. I used to be one amongst you. And one of the things that I learned in school, once almost like the way that the nature underneath the sea and the natures of the mountains, everything, is once you start looking at science, it screams for a creator. That's right. 
You start dealing with forgive the statements, calculus equations, and physics, and all of those kind of things. They keep identifying minute areas so atomically small with order that you left with, oh my, how is this happening? How does this occur? There's no explanation for this, and all the ones that have tried, they stumble whenever you push them to the limits of the ridiculousness that much of that tries to espouse. Science and technology can glorify God because it should be the instruments by which we use to say, wow, that's how he did it. That's what this is. And he says that I have abundance beyond what you're even discovering now. But keep in mind, they're discoveries. You haven't invented anything. You haven't created anything that I have not provided all the substance and all the things for you to do it. Your mind is mine. Your fingers and abilities and all of that, because I could, like that, strike you down. God has control of everything, and we can praise him because he provides his word that helps us see the power and the force of our God. He says, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with thus in any other nation. Friends, that is powerful. Israel was supposed to be the channel by which God moved into the world. And yet, unfortunately, they did not succeed in doing that. Their will was to stop that. How do we know? Because it was Israel that turned Jesus, God himself, over to the Roman government for execution. The very scriptures that they claimed were their guide and their source of life was standing before them. The word of God says in John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the special word. The church has been given that word to proclaim the gospel, to spread the good news. This is why we want to preach the gospel, share the gospel, sing the gospel. All the things of our lives should show the gospel is the greatest treasure in our lives because the gospel points to Jesus, our great treasure, our God. And that, when that is now our lifestyle, that's the motivation. See, then storms can come all around you and nothing can move what's inside of you. I can still praise God even when everything is falling apart. Paul in Acts 16. I love this. It says, at about midnight, if you remember the story, Paul and Silas were, were, were in, 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 in the areas of Philippi and, and, and preaching the gospel. And long story short, got arrested, got beaten, and not like assault, they, they were beaten, chained, and put in prison. Now many of us might say, Last time we'll ever hear from them again. No songs of praise there. We better start looking at a whole bunch of dirges, and I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of other kinds of words said, but last thing I'm going to hear is some singing. But what does the word say? While they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners we're listening. And in the midst of this period, when they should be moaning and groaning and 
Surely they don't expect us to be singing, God, you've made a mistake. They're praising God. They're singing songs like we just sang. They're making a melody. And the prisoners are hearing the gospel. Friends, our design is so that we can praise God. And we should use it at every opportunity we can get. In conclusion, as we close, God gave them his word for encouragement. And it's not so much as the word that's given. That's powerful. It's precious. It's more valuable than gold. But the word given does little value if the word is not received and acted upon. And so we want to make sure that in our praise, that we are living out the gospel and that we are following the commands of God and that we are doing the things that draw us close to him and drawing others close to him. Psalm 147 reminds us God is worthy of our highest praise and we should live a lifestyle of praise to God because he restores us to our purpose. He delights in loving his people and he gives us the provision of his word. Romans brings it up. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greatest treasure, greatest gift ever given. It deserves a lifestyle of praise. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your son. We thank you that, Lord, in him we have life and we have life abundant. So help us to live lives that are praiseworthy, that show your glory, that reveal the majesty in which no one else has, no other thing, no other place. Nothing else compares to you. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray that these words then would find great seeds of harvest in our hearts and that, Lord, they would be then the fruit that grows a hundredfold for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.